to engage with our feelings, our experiences, all right? how to rejoice, how to mourn, how to be angry at sin and injustice. And last week we heard a bit on how to um, long and hope for going home with our Lord. All right? um, and other ones sort of don't look at ourselves, but are all about looking at God, all about exalting him, worshipping him, lifting him up, and there's nothing about ourselves. That's great as well. But still others, are, um, like today's one, they are occasional or ceremonial. All right, today's one is what we call a coronation psalm. It's supposedly for the celebration of a king of Israel being established and, and crowned. And that's kind of strange because we read that it was written by David, who himself was a king. He was the current king. And he's writing it, right? It, it's kind of like if our, I don't know, prime minister decides before the federal election to host a party for the next guy who's going to replace him. No one does that, right? No one celebrates the next replacement ahead of time, but David does that. All right? As if he knows that while the kingdom of Israel is pretty strong under his rule, right, he's still expecting the coming of an even greater king. He realizes that the ideal king in God's mind is someone far greater than him. And so as led by the Holy Spirit, he's already anticipating and sort of mapping out a career path of what this king will be. All right? And so that's why we're going to look at um, this sort of picture that David builds for us. And then we're going to see uh, how exactly uh, Jesus fulfills that. I don't think that's much of a surprise that he does. Um, but we need to look carefully at, at both of those things. So... Uh, let's start from the first verse. Let me try and get my things in order. Okay. All right, so verse 1 says, and I, might, I think I'll put this on screen. There we have. Ooh. My, my animations didn't come through the, the Google, I think. Oops. Oh, that's a spoiler. That's a spoiler. It says, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. All right, and I've, as I've got there, um, the caps Lord is Yahweh, the name of God, while when he says my Lord, that just means my, my master, my, my authority, my superior. And so David knows that this king, again, the one that's coming, is an even greater one that he himself will have to submit to. And that this king isn't just the king of Israel, but he's a king at God's own right hand, ruling in direct partnership with God. In fact, actually, God seems to be the one more active in, in this verse. He's the one working out the victory for this king. What's this king doing? He's just sitting for an extended period of time. Right? And he remains seated. And in poetry like this, right, that's always symbolic of a person who has finished his work. He's done his job. He's finished his work, somehow earned his crown. And the results of his work are so extraordinary, so grand, that the supreme authority of this kingdom is completely guaranteed. Victory is in the future. The effects of it are fully in the future, but it's guaranteed. Okay. And so, naturally, then this... Uh, oh, dear. You know, I might actually just blank it. Otherwise, it's going to get a bit distracting, won't it? Is there a blanker on this? Jared, do you mind just... Uh, yeah, thanks, man. Okay. This isn't just the king of Israel, then. Uh, his kingdom is, again, far, uh, more far-reaching than that. So from verse 2, it says, The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion. You will rule in the midst of your enemies. Now, this is unheard of in ancient Israel. No one ever thought this would happen, because even at the peak of the greatness and prosperity of the kingdom of Israel, right? You would have maybe foreigners coming in to see that, that happened to David's son Solomon, right? There were other royalty from other nations coming in to see what they were like, 
but the people and the nation of God would never extend beyond the borders of Israel. And so this is already kind of strange that it's coming from Zion, right? But there's no end to it, though. It's going to sweep over the entire, uh, entire earth, right? And so he will rule also in the midst of his enemies. Uh, you might have to keep this open in front of you because it won't show up anymore. Um, and that's, again, sort of hinting to us that while this kingdom will span the whole earth, um, not everybody on earth will submit themselves to the authority of this king. Some will reject this, okay? And so how will this happen? Well, kingdoms naturally take over other land and other nations through warfare, through battle. And so it would seem to be the same here. So from verse 3, your troops, he says, will be willing. His people then are literally that word willing means volunteers, All right, not hired mercenaries. All right, he's not after people who would serve him out of obligation or fear or duty like many other tyrant kings in that time or even anything they can gain from it, but there seems to be something so excellent and so glorious about this king that they see it as their highest joy to willingly give themselves to serve him. And how are these armies described? Well, if you're looking uh, for an army to help you conquer the world, I think I have flashed up before, you'd be expecting a bunch of really strong, violent soldiers. I had a picture from like 300, that movie, right? Um, and actually, David, um, the author of this poem, was himself... Oh, yeah, don't worry about that, Jared. It's okay. Yeah, none of my animations made it through. It's fine. <laughs> he himself was a king, and he was very much involved in uh, warfare even before he got the throne. And so there's, there's a little passage in 1 Chronicles 12 that sort of goes through what his army was like. And part of it says, like, they could handle shield and spear and their faces were like lions and they could run like a gazelle, right? That's the sort of army you want if you want to take over the world, right? But this king here, it says that they'll come to him like the dew. Like the dew. That's really weird, right? Like the misty layer of moisture that nourishes and refreshes the earth every single day like that. I don't think any army is being compared to dew before. Right? And even in the history of Israel, that's really important because the first time we read of dew in the Bible is actually when uh, Isaac is blessing his, his sons, uh, Jacob and Esau. And when he's blessing uh, Jacob, who's actually Israel, um, he blesses him by saying, may God give you heaven's dew. Dew was a symbol of God's special favor, God's special blessing. And to Esau, who had given up the blessing of God, Isaac goes, your dwelling will be away from the dew of heaven. Right? And that's, that's sort of marked in the history. And more than that, um, Israel, every Israelite would have actually known that when their forefathers were wandering through the desert for 40 years, right, that every single day, right, they would have the dew come, and with the dew came the manna. Right? And that was really special to them. Right? Because we know that their journey through the wilderness was not a pleasant one. Right? We know that they grumbled, they complained, they wanted to go back to Egypt, they would rebel against God's authorities, they'd worship a golden calf, they'd do all those things, and God would discipline them, God would judge them for that. He'd send plagues, he'd send fiery snakes, he'd open the earth and swallow the rebels. But the next morning, the dew would come, the manna would come, because God would still feed his hungry people, because God's mercies are new every morning. And that is the patience, the love, the grace, and the forgiveness that this army is supposed to model and offer to the world around them. That is the mark of the army of this king. 
Okay, so story so far, we are after a king who supposedly will rule at God's right hand in direct partnership with him, who's finished a work so powerful and so extraordinary that he has guaranteed victory over all his enemies. He's got a kingdom that will span the entire earth, and also his armies are agents of peace and blessing and grace and forgiveness, and who serve him not out of obligation or duty or fear, but out of a place of love and eagerness. I don't think many people could fit that role, but it gets worse. Verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And so he's not just a king. He's like sort of dual rolling here. He's got to be a priest as well. And that, again, is completely unheard of in ancient Israel. And to understand this properly, we need to rewind. And we will be doing a fair bit of that for this, for this verse. And we need to look at what a priest is, what a priest does, and who uh, could be priests in ancient Israel. Okay, and so the role of a priest, I'm going to have to flick through mine because it probably won't show. Uh, Hebrews 5 says, Every high priest is selected from, oh, thank you, from among men. Yeah, I might be able to go with this from now. That's actually good. Uh, And is appointed to represent the people in matters related to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. And so we see a need for a person to represent the people before God, the assumption being that sin has, of course, broken the relationship between God and and man. And I think it's been broken in a number of ways, because if you remember back to the Garden of Eden, right, when man first sinned, I think two things happened. There were two sort of general consequences. One was that God pronounced judgment. He cursed man, cursed the whole world, right, because of sin. And then after that, he had to exile man and caused some relational distance as well. And so there's a legal problem, the matter of guilt and the legal judgment that our sin deserves. And there's also a relational distance between us and God. And the role of a priest is to step into the middle of that mess and to somehow bring healing and restoration to that relationship. And he does this by offering gifts and sacrifices sacrifices to deal with the legal part, the punishment part, that is now borne by someone else in our place, and gifts that deal with the relational part. Okay? But who were meant to be the priests? Who could be qualified? You can't just grow up and say, oh, I want to be a priest one day. You can't just do that. All right? um, supposedly, it was the whole nation of Israel. That's actually why God orchestrated the Exodus story. Um, when he says to them, after pulling them out, he says, although the whole earth is mine, you, that's talking to the nation of Israel, will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. But even while the details of this were being explained to Moses on the mountaintop and all the details were being given, Israel was doing what on the bottom? They were worshipping the golden calf. And most tragically, they were doing this under the leadership of the very person who would be their first high priest, who should have been the lead priest, Aaron. Okay? And so a little detail in that story is that when Moses comes down the mountain, everyone's in a huge frenzy. They're out of control, right? And Moses calls on whoever's for the Lord, whoever's on God's side, come to me. And on that day, the Levites came to Moses, and about 3,000 of the people died as the Levites went and put to death those who were completely out of control. Then Moses said, you have been set apart, that's the Levites, have been set apart to the Lord today. For you were against your own sons and brothers, and he has blessed you this day. 
And so who could be a priest? Well, here we're seeing that it's, it's sort of restricted to the tribe of Levi. Um, Kenzie talked to us last week about the, the exile, right? And actually, uh, a bunch of people came back from exile to try and rebuild things. And when they came back, there's a little book called Ezra that deals with some of that story. And when they came back, they were taking something like a roll call, right? And so all these names of people were being listed. And at the end of the roll call, there's a bunch of people who look like they're priests. I don't know how they knew that. They're like, hey, we're priests. I don't know. But Ezra's like, well, we better check your qualifications then. So what do they do? They whip out the genealogy, right? Something like a one chronicle, some kind of genealogy there, and they look for their names, and they can't find the names there. And so Ezra's like, sorry, you can't do it then. You're not part of the priests. Okay? And so to these people, the only thing qualifying you to be a priest is God's sovereign choice through your ancestry, through your genealogy. That's what qualifies you. Okay? And so that's actually why there was also never a king priest, no, no hybrid in Israel's history, because kings were from a different tribe. They were from the tribe of Judah, and so they were excluded from taking on the role of a priest. I had it coming up. Okay, never mind. Okay, so um, that's what it was like. That's why they, they were separate things. Okay, But this guy, this king that David's talking about, come back with me to the psalm, he can be a priest if he is from a completely different system of priesthood. You notice he says, you are a priest forever in the order or after the order of Melchizedek. Okay, so again, more, more history, sorry, we don't have to do this, but who's Melchizedek? Well, um, we, importantly, have to go even further back two generations to Abraham and his time, right? And um, in Abraham's time, there were kings and kingdoms already, and there's a weird story where you have four kings fighting five kings, four kings beat the five, and in doing so, they kidnap Abraham's nephew, Lot. Abraham gets a bit annoyed, so he takes his family, smashes the four kings, and rescues his nephew, brings him back, and on the way home, he gets intercepted by this guy called Melchizedek, who brings him some food, which is always a good way to make a good first impression. And he was priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abram. It mentions what he says when he blesses Abram. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. They all went home, and that's the story. Okay? Now, I don't know what I would do with this uh, if not for Hebrews 7 explaining to us the meaning where to draw from this. And, the, and more than that, the pattern of priesthood that we are to draw from this really short account. Okay, And so Hebrews 7 is, is there to... Um, we'll be doing a lot of work in that today. It's there to compare the two different priesthoods. right? The priesthood under Levi and Aaron and all the Moses stuff versus this really mysterious Melchizedek priesthood. He's trying to compare those two things. And so he says this about Melchizedek, that he is without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, resembling the Son of God. He, that's Melchizedek, remains a priest forever. Now, that would be spooky if he was, if he was trying to talk about the person, like a guy with no mom or dad. That's weird, right? But again, he's not really talking about the person. He's not trying to describe a biography of Melchizedek. He's trying to compare priesthoods. And remember, in the Israelite priesthood, the most important thing was what? Your ancestry, your genealogy. And he's saying this guy isn't introduced in the narrative as Melchizedek, son of blast. He doesn't say that because he doesn't care that this priesthood is one that does not care about your ancestry, what family line you come from. Right? It doesn't care about that. 
What does it care about then? Well, it says that he is also without beginning of days or end of life. You see, in all the Old Testament sort of priesthood rules and laws and stuff, um, every priest would have to pretty much retire at the age of 50. That was part of their law. Or they'd possibly die before then. All right? And that was a big problem. Not just because dying puts you out of action, but because dying proves that they themselves were under the curse of sin and death. They themselves were broken sinners in need of saving. They were part of the problem of the broken relationship between God and man. And so how could they step in and try and bring healing and restoration to that if they are part of the problem? And so the pattern this sets, this Melchizedek guy sets, is that there is someone who's going to be a priest forever. Or better translated, a priest continually, perpetually. No retirement, no end to his ministry or his role as a priest, unlike the Levitical priests, who lived and died and came and went because they themselves were sinful, broken, mortal people. And what does that give us? Hebrews 7 further down says that what we have said is even more clear if another priest like Melchizedek appears. One who has become a priest not on the basis of a regulation as to his ancestry, like all the Old Testament ones, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. Not just a life that's immune to the curse of sin and death, but a life that has power, has the ability to conquer the forces of sin and death in all humanity. And so to add to the already quite difficult job description for this king in our, in our psalm, right? Um, it's got to be somehow a man not under the curse of sin, a man with the power to conquer death, and so one who is able to bring real healing and restoration to the broken relationship between man and God, and so he can also act as the perfect priest. And that maybe already explains why his armies are to conquer, not through bloodshed and violence, but through offering his grace and peace and forgiveness even to his enemies. Okay, things get a bit worse though, still. From verse 5, The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath. He will judge the nations, heaping up the dead, and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. He will drink from a brook beside the way, therefore he will lift up his head. See, unfortunately, unfortunately, not everyone in the world will submit to this king priest. We said that before from verse 2. But finally, the day will come when this king acts not just as a, not ever, as a tyrant taking over the world, but actually as God himself enacting God's judgment against all sin. Right? Because sin isn't just things we do or say or think that hurt people and hurt the world and stuff like that as much as it's true. But sin is a deep-seated rebellion and offense towards God, our creator and king. And so when the king comes to enact the judgment of God on the whole earth, as we read here, right, he's not just going to do a surface-level job of locking up top criminals like you might have seen in recent news. But he will deal with the root problem of sin that exists in all of us. Okay? And so to finish the list of what this king will do, he will also judge the entire world. Okay? And so it's no surprise that Jesus is the one, the only one who fulfills all of this. But again, we want to think carefully about how he does this and then what implications that has for us. And so we'll pretty much rewind, go back over the whole thing, and show how Jesus uh, deals with this, or Jesus fulfills this uh, role. Okay, 
So verse 1 is actually a verse that's quoted multiple times in the New Testament directly. Uh, Jesus himself uses it on multiple occasions as well. And one interesting one is when he's actually on trial on the way to the cross. And he's being questioned by the high priest of that time, a guy called Caiaphas. And he's asked, are you the Christ? Are you this promised king? And Jesus pretty much says yes, which is very annoying to them. But he says more than that. He goes, I say to all of you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One. That's pretty much from our psalm. And coming on the clouds of heaven. That's Daniel 7. No, not for now. For later. Okay. Okay. So, okay. But the important thing here is that Jesus says what? From now on. From now on. Literally, from this instant on is what he says literally. Not in three days' time when I rise again and I show that I'm boss. Not in about 40 days after that when you see me physically ascend, but from this instant on when I walk to the cross. Which means that his kingdom, his coronation, his crowning as king, again, is established through the giving of his life on the cross for his people. As the ultimate priest, at the same time, he offers himself as a once-for-all sacrifice. He dies under the wrath of God, absorbing our guilt, our shame, the judgment we deserve, so that the righteous anger of God is turned aside, and the relationship between man and God can be restored. And so as he conquers our greatest enemies of sin and death, and he disarms them forever, the second last thing he says on the cross is what? It is finished. That one word, it is finished. The work is eternally done, the victory secured. He is at this very moment seated at the right hand of his Father, ruling until all things have been put under his feet. And so that's why the kingdom of God is no longer about ethnicity or ritual or ceremony, but the righteousness and peace and joy that come through putting our trust in this king. Okay, so what about um, his people from verses 2 and 3? Um, It says, The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion. You'll rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing on your day of battle, arrayed in holy majesty. From the womb of the dawn, they'll come to you like the dew. And so the armies he chose were not a horde of strong soldiers, but a bunch of very ordinary people, the most prominent of whom were poor, uneducated, driven only by the love and grace they themselves had received from their king not too long ago. And as they spoke on that first day in the, in the, in the upper room, right, the crowds gathered around heard them speaking in multiple languages to show that while the gospel and the kingdom of God was beginning in Jerusalem where they were, that's, that's Zion, by the way, it was going to make its way across the whole world to all nations, to all languages, to all people. And on that day, 3,000 About 3,000 were cut down, not in judgment against a people led by a failed high priest to worship a golden calf, but they were cut down with the sword of the Spirit and Word of God as they were pierced to the heart and led to repentance and faith in Jesus, their Savior and King. And those days of battle, I think, continue as we too carry on this work of offering the forgiveness and grace of God to those around us as we and other churches send people to the ends of the earth, still carrying the gospel of this kingdom. Okay, and the second uh, half from verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath. He will judge the nations heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. 
He will drink from a brook beside the way, therefore he will lift up his head. Now, if victory over sin and death and the forces of evil is already secure, then, then why wait to finish the job? Right? Why let evil and injustice seemingly flourish on earth for so long? Well, Peter tells us that one reason is that he gives us a chance to put our trust, our confidence, our faith in Jesus, who gave his life to bear the guilt of our sin and the judgment of God on our behalf. Because again, he is not in the business of doing a half-hearted job of fixing the world. He intends to wipe out all sin, all evil. And he wants to give us all a chance to not be part of the guilty group being wiped out. And who, who are the guilty ones? Well, I think we all know that we're guilty. Even when judged by our own standards, you don't even need the Bible to know that you're guilty. It says that. Right? See, I'm sure none of us would appreciate if our own lives, everything we did and said and thought, even just from the past week or so, were put on display for all to see. I think we'd go up into a ball and cry or something. All right? And so the choice each of us has when we face our king and our judge is whether I am judged by my life, by my actions, what I've done, or whether on that day my claim is that Christ has died for me, he's paid for all my failings, that his perfection and his righteousness are mine. And if that's something you've never really engaged with or heard before, that's something we would love for you to put your trust in because even now, even today, we can find forgiveness um, at the cross. But verse 4 says that uh, Jesus is currently now acting as a priest. And so if we have put our trust in Jesus, um, my question would be what confidence have we that we will finish the race, that we will not walk away from the faith, that we will make it to the end? See, with the forces of the devil and the world and my own sins still so strongly in action, if the security and assurance of my salvation depended on the strength of my conviction or my effort in growing my faith and whatnot, I don't think I'd last very long at all. right? But Hebrews 7, as we... Um, Carry on with that, says this, because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood, therefore he is able to save completely or save to the uttermost those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. So you see, just as we were saved purely by grace, by the work of Jesus on our behalf on the cross, so to the preservation of our faith. The fact that we will keep our faith, that we'll make it to the end, that is also purely by grace, by the ongoing work of Jesus on our behalf as our high priest. And so as surely as he remains alive, and I think that's going to be for a very long time, I can be equally sure that I remain saved. Not because of how strong my faith is, but because he always lives to carry me, to uphold me, to intercede for me when I fail. I want to say a quick note to um, the parents as well, because we have a lot of parents of, of very young children or soon-to-be parents. Um, I'm not a parent, obviously, but I have taught in a Christian school for a number of years, and so I have watched many children grow in strong Christian households, much like what we have here. All right. And I've had the chance to talk with and pray with a couple of um, parents, a couple of very heartbroken parents, as they've watched their kids wander from the faith as they've watched their kids be distracted by other things or to pursue other things or to embrace other ideas. Right? And I want you to know that the eternal destiny of your child does not rest on your shoulders. And so do your duty. Be faithful in teaching them well, in guiding them well, in raising them in the faith 
but you are not their saviour. You are not their priest. You are not the one with the power to fix the broken relationship between them and their God. And so much more than all of those things that I know you guys do so well, right? be entrusting them to their high priest. Be pleading with him, the one who loves them more than you ever could, the one who actually carries the power to save them completely and to intercede for them. But really, we all need that sort of priest, don't we? Because the next verse in in Hebrews says, uh, such a high priest truly meets our need. One who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. All right. And that's all of us. We all have a need for that. All right. Even when we feel we're doing pretty good. All right. Maybe we feel like we're, you know, this year we've, we've made some resolutions and we're sticking to them. That's what Kenzie sort of uh, sussed out just then. All right. Maybe even our spiritual sort of uh, habits are coming back. Right. We've got a good prayer life. We're reading and we're learning heaps from our Bible. Uh, we've remembered to update our giving, maybe even increased our giving. Who knows? Right. We're serving at church where <laughs> we regularly give to church in the wider community. We still need a priest. Not because, as John says, that we deceive ourselves if we think we have no sin. I think we're all aware of that. But actually, we need a priest to uphold us and purify us even in the good that we do. I want to show you a quick verse from the Old Testament picture of the high priest. Again, for us, it's Jesus, but for them, it was Aaron. So make a plate of pure gold and engrave on it as on a seal, holy to the Lord. It will be on Aaron's forehead. And he will bear the guilt involved in the sacred gifts the Israelites consecrate, whatever their gifts may be. It will be on Aaron's forehead continually so that they will be acceptable to the Lord. You see, the assumption here is that, look at the third line there, there is guilt involved in the sacred gifts, in the good that you bring to God. Whether it's a material gift of of money or, or, or whether it's your service, your energy, or anything you feel you can say, God, I've given you this. God, I've brought this to you. The assumption is there's so often guilt in that, isn't there? What kind of guilt? Well, maybe there's still some self-seeking thoughts, thoughts of approval or respect we can gain from it. Right? Maybe there's pride, right? thoughts of self-sufficiency, thinking that um, this, this team or this ministry or even for some of us, maybe this church can't do without me. And that elevates yourself so much to the point where you forget that the church stands or falls based on God and his blessing and provision alone. None of us here are indispensable. But our pride makes us feel that way sometimes. Man, I do so much. To think that we're better than other people, people around us who might, might not be going so well, who might not serve as much. See, we still need a priest even for the good we do. We need a priest to purify us. And that that engraving seal thing says what? Holy to the Lord, as if to say Jesus is the only one whose heart and soul and mind and body were completely, totally set apart for his Father and for his Father's glory alone. Right? And so it's it's as if he is there saying, yeah, when we watch these little children try and bring us stuff, right? would you accept them? Would you purify that on my behalf? And that doesn't excuse us, doesn't mean we don't have to repent for those things, just as much as him interceding for us doesn't mean we don't have to repent from sin, but I think that further encourages us to face those impurities, face the guilt that's involved in even the good we do and the good we bring to God. 
to be able to lay it out before him and say, yeah, I need you to purify that because my heart is not pure, even in the good I do. Okay, last thing. Because maybe for others, um, we don't feel that way. Maybe we actually have felt quite far from God, quite distant from him. Maybe because we've been distracted by a lot of other things. Maybe because of the guilt and shame of our own sin. Maybe because of bitterness, anger, unresolved conflicts. Maybe just disrupted church routines in recent times. We might feel deeply unworthy to approach God, and in many ways that would be true. But the next chapter of Exodus from 29 um, is actually about God's invitation and the ceremony through which God consecrates the other priests. Not the high priest, but the other priests. Right? And when God invites them and says, hey, I'm going to consecrate you, right? that word consecrate to us often means to make something really holy, really special, really cool, really set apart for God. Right? But in Exodus 29, the word consecrate literally just means to fill their hands. You see, the priests, when they were invited to take on this job, would come entirely empty-handed. But they would be washed, they would be clothed, and their hands would be filled. With what? It'd be filled with a bunch of unleavened bread and some meat from the sacrifice. Right? That's what it would be filled with. And they'd just be carrying it and they'd like wave it. I won't go into details. It's really cool, though. It's really cool. But not for now. Okay. But what's God trying to say say to us there, though? He's saying, "I, I, I know you. I know you have nothing. I know you are nothing. I know you often feel the guilt and shame of your sin, but he invites you to come. And God would say, I will wash you. I will clothe you. I will fill you. With what? The unleavened bread standing for the sinlessness and the righteousness and the excellency of Christ. The meat from the sacrifice that stands for his finished work on the cross, paying for your sins and the assurance and peace that that gives you. The same assurance and peace that inspired those people back in the upper room to be such a force for the kingdom. See, Jesus is the reason that we are not just forgiven criminals, but dearly beloved children, that we are uniquely qualified royal priests. He is the offering we bring to God, and not just the offering, but the great high priest upholding us speaking on our behalf in the presence of God, so that no matter how far we might feel we've wandered from him, we can have the full assurance that he always, always welcomes us back because of Jesus and what he's done for us. And so remember the words we sang at Christmas, uh, the new song uh, that said, Come, though you have nothing. Come, he is the offering. Come, see what your God has done. And that's the invitation that God gives to all of us today, especially as we sing our last song as well. But let me finish in a word of prayer. Father, wherever we may feel we are in our relationship with you, help us to first and foremost see our need for you as our high priest. Teach us true humility. Teach us that we are nothing. And might we cling to... uh, to you, Jesus, and what you have done for us. Might that give us assurance and peace, and might that empower us then to, um, yeah, to, to give ourselves fully and joyfully to the work of your kingdom. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.